From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. As always, this podcast brought to you by EPR Creations, bringing you the best of internet development, internet marketing, and website development. And uh, doing that for an affordable price. Can you tell I'm a little rusty with my ad reads? And then some more new stuff is coming up soon, in any case. And of course, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, specializing in the Nocatee area in particular. But uh, if you want to buy any real estate or sell any real estate in the greater Jacksonville area, Lewis is the best in the business. Let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. Also by ShenRealEstate.com. That's Shenandoah Realty in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. Nobody does a better job in the Research Triangle area. And finally, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. If you just, if you want to have the best garage in your neighborhood, they're the people to talk to. They do a great job. Uh, I've known them, known, known Nathan uh, and, and those folks for a while, and they, they really take great pride in what they do. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast and uh, helps us out a lot. Well, all that said, there's a whole lot to catch up on because it has been quite a while. I was out of pocket for the end of Julo- June and nearly all of July, uh, pretty much the only week I could have done anything. I got flattened by some nasty bug and was uh, just at one point I was completely unable to talk, lost my voice. I still haven't gotten my voice fully back from that point, but uh, here we are going to power through. Uh so that means I didn't get to end to all the mailbag mailbag stuff that I'd intended to this summer as a result. Sorry about that, everybody. It's just uh, it's been a wild, wild couple years, and a, it was a wild summer as uh, my wife finally finished school and uh, got through the end, and then uh, just passed her board exam. So, so that that's going to mean basically, and I, I know a lot of you are just not interested in the family side of this or, you know, personal side of this, but uh, that is going to mean more opportunities for me and more flexibility for me to finally get back to uh, the kind of coverage that I've wanted to do with this kind of coverage that I was able to do really before COVID. Uh, and then since then have not, not been able to do uh, quite as, as much stuff as I'd done previously, where there were more video breakdowns and that sort of thing. And I'll be able to do some of that uh, much more, this this football season that I've been able to do in quite a while. So really looking forward to that and looking forward to uh, getting back in the saddle here. Uh, but that also means that some of the questions that I got over that period are now moot, uh, such as one, uh, one of the ones that was on my list here is from late June. Tommy had, uh, had sent me the following, man, I just don't get how UF and UM are recruiting better than FSU. I know it's early and all, but the program is on the uprise and there's still a lackluster recruiting from FSU. Now I had responded. And for those of you who did send me messages during this period, you'll know that uh, for the most part I did, I just responded via text. And that's one of those things where for those of you through Patreon and other things uh, you've known for quite a long time that uh, if I'm not able to do uh, uh, episodes. And oftentimes, even if I do episode, do do episodes, a lot of times I'll send a full response or, or at least a preliminary response, uh, via message before I ever go to it on the air. And in this case, I just sent <laughs> a four word response. FSU will be fine. Because at that point I, I had heard that there were some good things coming. And then of course, uh, shortly after that, Mike Norvell had promised fireworks and, uh, yeah, 
since then, it's safe to say that Florida State has uh, has there there have been some fireworks recruiting wise now up to a top five class, and I think that's going to hold. Uh, you look at some of the guys that they've gotten to commit since then. You look at uh, uh, Manasa Itete. I think that's how you say his name. The flip from USC. That that guy is a stud offensive line prospect, and what to me looks like a pretty weak overall year for offensive line. Uh, then you've got uh, Lester. You've got Charles Lester the third and uh, KJ Bolden, two just absolute stud defensive back prospects, two of the best in the country. Both five stars and both deserving five stars. I actually think Bolden is close to a Travis Hunter level as a prospect. Maybe not quite that level of production. Uh, and you know, Hunter had a sort of twitchiness that was rare at that at both the wide receiver and, and corner positions. But Bolden, to me, has a has a longer frame and I think can fill out a little bit more and and be maybe a bigger athlete on top of the twitch that he has. And he is a top level i mean just a just a silly fast sprinter just like hunter i think he might actually be faster than hunter was so you're talking about that level of db prospect and the other really encouraging thing is that those guys wanted to play for florida state this was not a matter of you know better nil or anything like that these guys these guys wanted to play for florida state that's why they committed to florida state they're the kind of guys you want in your program for exactly that reason. And in that sense, I think this is a this is actually a kind of an old school Florida State class in that the guys who are who are committing to to this class, they're doing so because they want to play for Florida State. They want to play for an up and coming program for a coaching staff that they are that they recognize as, you know, a staff that they want to play for and this is this these are all very very positive signs. Another guy that that I think everybody should be very very excited about. And look, they they've signed or or they've uh they've had what 12 commits since since uh what July 1st. It's crazy. Uh you look at you look at some of these guys, a couple others that I'm really excited about. Uh Danzy, the 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 athlete running back type, I mean gadget player really. He might be the fastest high school player in the country. And he he adds the kind of gadget playmaker that Norvell is so good, and he's always been so good at featuring and and really squeezing extra offense out of. Danzy, basically, you could take, I mean, the way you have to think about it is a take a guy like uh Toafili and make him a near world class sprinter. You know, Toafili's a good player, but you know, he's a guy that's not going to just run away from literally anybody on the field. Danzy is not going to get caught from behind very often, pretty much by anybody on the football field. Just a great fit for what Norvell likes to do. Didi Holmes, the edge prospect from uh, the, the edge player from, from Washington, DC. He's a guy at six, six plus 250 plus, I think is around where he's at. At this point, you look at the bend and the quickness and the length of that guy. And he is just a great fit for what Florida State likes to have on the edge. And, and he could be, that, that's a guy that could carry probably 275, 280 and still be able to move and, and be able to bend the edge some. I mean, that, that's a really, really high level prospect. One of, the, one of the guys I like the most in this class. Uh, and I think he's a guy that, that is going to be a riser nationally. 
and several other really good prospects. I mean, this is not a class with a bunch of, uh, with a bunch of low level prospects. So yeah. And, and the thing is there's good momentum for a couple other, for a few other top targets and, and a couple that are committed elsewhere. And the way I see it right now, from, from what I understand, if, if Florida state can start four and if they beat LSU and Clemson in that first month of the season, there's going to be a lot of coaching staffs around the country saying, uh Oh, and that's not just about the 2024 class, but the 2025 class and beyond, because at that point, now you're dealing not only with the, with the coaching staff and a program that showed proof of concept, but now is a legit championship type contender and everybody will know it. And a few, and, and if they're, if they're winning those games, it's because guys like Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman and all of that, those guys are showing out and they're demonstrating that, yeah, you can get, you can be a legit major top NFL prospect in the Garnet and gold. And, and so much about recruiting. I was just talking with someone uh, from another 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 program is just talking about how so much of recruiting is being able to get the high level player that you're recruiting, the higher level player than maybe you've got on your roster, to envision what it looks like to have someone like him in your uniform and in your program doing what you ask him to do and having success. It so much boils down to that. So if you're a wide receiver who's, you know, a quick type player, you know, playmaker, and you see Peter Warwick in 98, 99, and you see him in, in, in Florida State, in a Florida State uniform, it's real easy to see yourself doing that. And you can, you can just put yourself, you can visualize it and you go, yep, you know what? I can see that. That's where I want to go. It's really easy. If you are a top level quarterback and you see Charlie Ward and, and, and Chris Winkie and, and Jameis Winston, that kind of player, it's really easy to, to visualize yourself in that, in that situation or a Jordan Travis now, right? You can see yourself in that. Or if, if you're a gadget player and you're like, man, I can see myself being even better than that guy in that offense. And I, I see how they're going to use me. So much of recruiting is about that, is about being able to, to show a guy this is what you'd look like here and see how you'd have success. Look how we'd set you up for the next level. And boy, you get a good start to this year and a lot more guys can easily see themselves in those situations. So yeah, really, really good momentum on the recruiting trail. Now they just have to carry it through a healthy, healthy camp and, uh, and a successful first month of the season. And then I think they're off to the races with finishing the class as well as they've, as they've got the momentum now. And there's not a whole lot of spots left, but I think they've got a chance to, to finish in that, you know, top three, four area, which is, you know, that's where they need to be if they want to continue to, uh, to, to contend for titles and, and all of that. Now, a few other questions that did come in and I'm going to take care of those pretty quickly here. Uh, let's see. So this one, and this is actually a, a, a series of questions that I'm going to just answer very quickly, all from, from the same uh, conversation here. Just watch the highlights of the 2021 Florida State versus Notre Dame matchup that went into overtime and wanted to ask you what you think of the coaching matchup between Mike Norvell and Brian Kelly. Every time they faced each other, Brian has had a more, uh, Kelly has had a more talented team, but Norvell has been able to answer the call, excluding the 2020 season with a lesser team. 
Now going into this year, the talent gap isn't as big. Is there more we haven't seen from Norvell? Is there anything new Kelly hasn't seen from Norvell since they're so familiar with each other? That's a great question. It really is. And and it's one of those things that that I think will be uh, the sort of thing that I want to, I want, if I'm, if I'm able, I want to address with some video stuff. But all told, uh, I think overall Mike is a better scheme coach, better overall, you know, coordinator type coach and in-game coach than, than Brian Kelly is. Now, Kelly is, I think, an underrated in-game coach just because of how he, he coaches very aggressively. I mean, you go back to the, uh, to the what, 2014 Notre Dame-Florida State game, and Notre Dame very nearly won that game simply because Kelly kept playing four-down football. And the, that defense would, would stop Notre Dame on third down, and then Notre Dame would go for it on fourth down. And I don't remember what they were on fourth down, but they got a bunch of them. And, you know, that's, a, that's part of the in-game coaching thing. Uh, so he's a good in-game coach, but, you know, scheme-wise and all of that, he's always been pretty, pretty vanilla in my view. And one of the strengths of, of Mike's approach, one of the strengths of Norvell's approach is in terms of what he does offensively. And, you know, I talked about this when, when he first got hired. One of the things that I liked so much about him then, and I still like, is that his offense is so flexible. It's that there's so many counters baked into his offense that it really doesn't matter if there's, if he puts anything new in or not, because there's so many wrinkles that are just baked into the offense as a, if they show this, we'll do that. If they show this, we'll do that. If they respond this way, then this is the counter that there's always answers baked in. There's always something that's left. And in this sense, very similar kind of philosophical approach to the last successful Florida state head coach. I mean, that's one of the things I talked about for years with Jimbo Fisher and Fisher had a counter punchers offense. I mean, that's, that's what he runs is everything is get to the line of scrimmage and you've got answers baked in for whatever they do defensively. If they're in middle of the field closed, then, you know, here's, here's the concept you've got against that over here and read it this way. And if he jumps here, then you go there and everything is, there's always an answer built into everything. And Fisher's obsessed about that, about making sure that, that there's always an answer to whatever the defense might do. Now, the problem on Fisher's side is if you become too much of a counterpuncher's offense and you don't establish a clear identity of who you are, you can become, you, you can sort of wind up having sort of a lack of, a, again, a lack of identity and not, not really be able to impose your will on teams. To me, Norvell takes that counterpunching aspect. There are answers baked in to whatever he's got. Very similar to Fisher. But he does that with a very clear identity of what he wants to be offensively. Now that, just like with Fisher, that can change year to year. There, there were times where Norvell was much more based on, on Indy, on, on uh, inside zone, than what he's been the last couple of years where they've been very much counter-based and they run some, some power and, and, and some other gap stuff along with that. But they're, they're much more of a gap team at this point than they have been. But the thing that, that, that Norvell is always going to do is, and, and this is one of the things I love about how he coaches is he's going to, he's going to emphasize the identity of finding creative ways to run the football 
and to get numbers at the point of attack, to get the angles that he wants with a variety of different, they've got a lot of different blocking schemes up front. This is not the easiest offense in the world in terms of, of offensive line to learn because they've got a whole lot of different uh, checks and all and, and adjustments and, and all sorts of different schemes that they run on the offensive line in the running game. But the, the basic identity is they're going to find a way to pound you and run the football and be physical. And then off of that, they're going to have all sorts of different counter punches. Now, what kind of counter punches they're going to pull is going to depend on what kind of punches you're going to try to try to hit them with as a, as a defensive coordinator. So that's the basics. Now, Kelly is is still going to bring a lot of the same stuff that he's done in each of those matchups against against Norvell. And I think in this matchup, another question that I got from from one of the other one, one, another listener on this is, do you think that that Kelly and LSU are going to for the third time now facing Jordan Travis, basically focus on taking Travis's legs away first? So are they going to are they going to try to take Travis's legs away and keep him from being able to run? just like they did last year in the in the the opener and just like they did in the opener between Notre Dame and Florida State 2 years ago are they going to is is Kelly going to take the same approach my answer to that is yeah he's going to do the same thing the same the same type of stuff that they did last year and the same type of stuff they did 2 years ago is the same stuff that you're going to see from Kelly and by and large, you're going to see the same responses from Norvell. You're not going to see a whole lot new. The question here was, is there anything new that, that Kelly hasn't seen from Norvell since they're so familiar with each other? The answer to that is yes, there are a few new things, but by and large, it's not go- those games, this game is not going to be won on something new that Kelly hasn't seen. The difference is that there's so much of what Norvell does that's based on the flexibility built into his offense formationally and otherwise that there's lots that will look different and that will use a little wrinkle that was already there that's built in that hasn't really been used so it's going to look new in certain senses but it's still going to be stuff that they've done before and there's plenty of those wrinkles left and there's plenty of those different looks left and you know, look if you're Brian if you're Brian Kelly and you look at last year's LSU game and you know you lose in the last seconds like that and yeah I know, I know Florida State should have put that game away earlier but you lose in those situations in that in in that scenario in that circumstance are you really do you really go into this feeling like you have to change a lot no you feel like you need to win a couple more plays and you win that game and that's what you're telling your players. Look, we just got to play a little bit better than we did last year, and we got a lot better over the course of the season. You know, Mason Smith is back. We're, you know, we've got some other additions that we feel better about. We're going to go in there, play our game, and you know, we'll come out on top. That's what they're going to say. So, that's that's what I think we're going to see coming up against uh, against LSU, and I think that I still think that's a tall order for LSU. You know, if you if you come into this game with the same basic game plan that they had. And say, okay, we're going to force Jordan Travis to make plays from the pocket. We're going to keep keep some extra eyes on him, and we're going to single cover wide receivers and and force him to make some throws downfield, and see if their receivers can beat our corners. And they're putting a lot of trust in those transfer corners that they've just brought in. Well, you know that's a tall order. 
because with where Florida State's at this year, and I, I don't want to you know go belabor this too long because I'm going to spend some time on this in the in the season previews and positional previews, but you know, good luck to those teams that decide that they want to single cover Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman on the outside. And if you're going to double team one of them, you can't double team both of them. And if you do try to double team both of them and keep those safeties over the top, well, now you got some dynamic playmakers at tight end. I mean, look, 87 was good for Florida State at tight end last year, but you compare what he brings to the table or brought to the table last year, and you compare that to six, you compare that to Jaheim Bell this year at the tight end H-back position, and much more explosive, a much bigger threat there than, than last year. Just overall, the tight end position is, is a much more dangerous spot for Florida State there. And I think in general, you know, the slot wide receiver position also has more big play potential. You know, last year, Pittman was, was a reliable slot. And, and that's what he brought to the table is the fire and reliability. As long as they can get that kind of reliability catching the football from whoever's at the slot, and, and there's going to be a lot of bodies vying for that spot. You look at that. Winston Wright is a bigger play, bigger play threat there. Uh, Poitier, bigger play, big play threat, big play threat there. Douglas, healthy again, big play threat there. Darian Williamson, as he gets healthy again, big play threat there. So, you, essentially, what they're going to be able to do is is put LSU in again that situation where if you're going to try to take Travis Legs away as a as a priority. Well, that's fine. We can use those legs as a as a distraction, but now you're taking away one guy that you can't that means one fewer double team that you can that you can handle in terms of coverage. And some of those some of those guys turn into into some pretty big mismatches, and that's what they're gonna count on. So another question that I got was what makes a good in-game coach? To me, a good in-game coach is someone who's who first and foremost makes good decisions in important situations as they present themselves. So, you know, fourth down. Not just so someone who doesn't just follow only instinct and and take the safe with a quote unquote traditional route safe route over and against analytics and someone who also doesn't just trust analytics over and against understanding situations and all of that but someone who has good judgment and says look I know the analytics say this here's our situation against what they have we've got this injury that changes the look so we're going to make this decision so somebody who can do all of that calculation in real time and make good decisions consistently. That's number one. And number two is someone who, in terms of system, has a system in place so that counters are baked in and prepared for the contingencies and counters that arise from the other team during the game. So it's someone who, you know, you don't have to go in and, and, and do a whole new game plan or any, anything else. It's someone who understands, okay, they're doing this. We prepped for that. Now we make, now's when we counterpunch with this and you do it at the right time and all of that. That's, that's what a good game coach is. And, and to me, there are quite a few good, good in-game coaches at the power five level, but I don't think there's very many that are really excellent at it. And I do think Mike Norvell is one of that list of maybe 10 or so excellent in-game coaches at the power five level. One of those guys who in terms of organization system, uh, system preparation and all of that has baked in counters ready, understanding that, okay, here's what they're probably going to do. And here's, you know, the few things we have set aside to counter their counters. He's very good at that. 
and I think he also has a good sense of both the analytics and and the the general flow of the game and, and makes generally I mean there have been a few that I've disagreed with over the last few years, but generally makes good decisions. Okay. Next question. Uh, with the recent addition of the transfer linebacker for Northwestern, what is Norvell's and Fuller's defensive philosophy and how does that translate to the roster construction? How much has that philosophy changed since being at Florida State and going against Power 5 competition? It appears their strategy is going for difference makers along the D-line while having productive and consistent, albeit throwback-type linebackers behind them. Is that the wrong assessment? So I think in general, they've not really changed their philosophy for the for Power 5 versus Group of Five, and, and they shouldn't because, I mean, it's football's football. You know, college football's college ball. Uh, the biggest change that I've seen in terms of what they're doing by and large is that, to me, they've been doing less hybrid stuff at the Fox spot you know, at at the rush end spot, they've been doing less hybrid stuff. They've been more of a true four down team now than when they were at Memphis, uh, where they were more of a hybrid four two uh, three three front with the Fox as a little more more of a tweener. They've gotten bigger essentially, and what they want on the defensive line at this point is the same as what everybody else wants: huge defensive tackles who are quick enough to penetrate and create havoc, and long bursty defensive ends who have some size as well and can rush the passer and set the edge. If you have that, well, you know you're going to be pretty good. But everybody wants that. Now, they do want one defensive end who is bigger, you know, 260 plus, And the weight range of the other is going to be a little more variable, maybe 240, you know, 245. So there is a little bit of a difference. Now, the, the, the thing that, that I think you might be highlighting here in terms of that transfer linebacker initiating this question is, the, and this is partly due to the influence of Randy Shannon, at linebacker, they really are pushing for football players. They want instinctive guys who process really quickly, first and foremost. So they'll take, in certain cases, guys who may not be the, 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 the best overall freak athlete at the linebacker position. What they want is the guy who is going to process 0.3 seconds faster, not necessarily the guy who's going to run the 40.2 seconds faster. See, that's the thing. So they're looking for linebacker. They're going instincts first, physical makeup second. That doesn't mean physical makeup isn't considered, but they want the guy that processes super fast first. And actually, one of the interesting things is uh, I looked at this. I need to find this, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find this for the next podcast episode to go over a little bit more carefully, or maybe for the uh, linebacker specific position preview. That's probably the one I'll do it on. But I, I recently uh, located a thing in terms of looking at uh, the success rate of uh, or the success of linebackers based on various NFL combine traits. And one of the things that was a little bit surprising there is that there was actually a negative correlation between 40 speed and linebacker overall success rate in the NFL. You'd think that the the guys that you know were more athletic, ran faster 40s, would just be better linebackers in the NFL. But it turns out that's not the case. And in fact, the correlation is slightly negative, which... Again, you're like, wait, do you want slower linebackers? No, you want, you know, all things being equal, you want the faster linebacker. A faster linebacker is going to be able to hang with, you know, faster slot receivers and be able to chase down more guys downfield and, you know, finish plays in the pocket, that sort of thing. All sorts of that. But it doesn't matter if he's not running in the, in, in the right direction. And ultimately, the guys that have the most success at the linebacker position are your guys that maybe are not the most... Uh, you know, it's, it's not the physical freak position that a lot of people think it is. It's really more about processing. And Ray Lewis, by the end of his career was running like a four, eight, five or four, nine. 
probably. I mean, actually, by the end of his career, he was probably over five. But he was still a good linebacker because he processed so dang fast. And so you, you look at what Shannon's really looking at. I mean, I think his kind of ideal linebacker in a lot of ways is Jonathan Vilma. Super smart, processes really, really fast. Not the fastest guy in the world, but, you know, thick enough and, and big enough to be able to finish finish downhill and, you know, plays physical football and processes so fast that he's going to be in the right spot nine times out of 10 before you can make any play. That's what they're looking for. So, yeah. And that's why, by the way, you get these Randy Shannon specials, you know, like guys that are less recruited at linebacker and maybe not the, not, not the build or the, or quite the 40 speed that, that uh, recruit Nick's would want, but Shannon's like, no, I want that guy. Look at how quickly he triggers. Look at how quickly he responds here. Look at how he moves. They also want some hip flexibility and, and some ability to, to, to be fluid in space. But that, that's, that's the stuff that he's looking for. Look how hard-nosed he is coming downhill. You know, Omar Graham is a guy that I think is going to be very much the, a Randy Shannon type of linebacker in that respect. Uh, and, and, you know, Tatum Bethune is that kind of linebacker. I mean, I'm not sure how well he's going to test but if you watched him last year, he was by far Florida State's best linebacker because how quickly he he processes. And that, that's just the way that works. So anyway, go ahead and transition to the next subject. And this is one that a lot of the behind the scenes conversations that I've had over the past couple of weeks, past few weeks have been on this uh, with people who some people who know a lot more than I do and have passed along information. And then, you know, there've been some folks who've been, you know, asking, is this going to happen? And that has to do with, you know, conference realignment. And look, we are, we are in another phase of conference realignment. I mean, I was sad to see the, uh, the PAC 12 now down to the PAC four as essentially that, that conference has been picked clean of all of the, uh, the, 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 the properties with any sort of value. And now you've got the big 10 as a true coast to coast conference with four teams from the former PAC 12, and, uh, you know, another few just went to the went to the Big 12. And then now you have the Bay Area schools and, and a couple others that are left and they're left holding the bag. I mean, you've got if you're Oregon State, this is disastrous. You know, it's if you are uh, if you're Washington State, this is disastrous. I mean, Oregon State just built up their their facilities, took out loans, did all this stuff on the premise under the assumption that they would have 30 million dollars a year in TV funding to be able to pay back those loans to be able to compete in the Pac-12. And all of a sudden it looks like now they're going to go from they're going to go from 30 million a year expectation that drove those 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 purchases, those building projects to all of a sudden 4 million dollars a year. 26 million dollars a year less is going to make it a lot harder to 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 meet to meet your bills. And you know, that's going to be sad for a lot of student athletes, that's sad for those programs. And you know, it's frustrating also to understand that there're going to be a lot of student athletes who, you know, Seriously, you're going to do a a conference game, you're Oregon and you're going to do a conference game with Rutgers? A lot doesn't make sense in today's current uh landscape, but you know, here we are and and Florida State is fully aware, the powers that be at Florida State are fully aware that, you know, they need to have they need to be in a position where they they they're getting the same kind of funding that the, you know, top 2 conferences are getting. And from what I've gathered, the powers that be at Florida State have already decided. I mean, this decision's already been made, essentially, uh, to leave the ACC. It's just a matter of when and how. I mean, and I guess that's not revelatory. I mean, that's pretty close to what Drew Weatherford actually said uh, publicly 
in terms of the, the, the board of trustee, the most recent board of trustees meeting. But by that, I mean, like, this is a matter of they've decided to leave sooner than later and to essentially take on the grant of rights somehow. Now, you know, what does that look like? I, I've, I've got some serious questions about what that looks like. Uh, but I, I'm, I've, I've been told that there is a very real chance that Florida State gives its, its notice to the conference that they're leaving before this year's August 15th deadline. That's entirely possible and maybe probable. But I, I don't think that's a, a done deal in that respect because I, uh, if not every I is dotted and T crossed and, and certain things, I think the, they, they need to feel as though they're absolutely certain that they're making the right decision based on other, other elements that could, that could arise between now and that prospective announcement uh, that they could push it back one more year. But I would be surprised based on what I've gathered I would be surprised if they waited any longer than that, than, than one year from, from now. Uh, and right now, as I understand it, if Florida state left, I think it would be from the, for the big 10. But I also, again, I don't think that's written in stone and I don't think anyone outside the decision makers themselves know what's going to happen. And I'm not even sure they know that at this point. And again, the, the real issue here, the real problem remains the grant of rights and you know, despite the various rumors, I mean, there's somebody on Twitter, or I'm sorry, X, God, yesterday, uh, who was who was trying to explain to me that you know, Florida State is you know, there's already a negotiated number. They already know what they're going to have to pay to ESPN to void the grant of rights, and that's just not true. The first problem, anybody who tells you that, the first problem is that that can't be true, because the grant of rights is not with the is not with ESPN. If it were, that would actually be easier. But the grant of rights is with the ACC. What the grant of rights does contractually is it locks Florida State's media rights. Florida State essentially agreed to transfer, to turn over all of its media rights to the ACC until 2036. So that every dollar that comes in, in terms of media broadcasts, whether that's with ESPN or anybody else, does not go to Florida State, but that instead gets paid out by contractually that gets paid out from the media rights holder or from the broadcaster, I should say, to the ACC. And then the ACC distributes that to their member schools, of which if Florida State is in the ACC, Florida State is one. So this is not the grant of rights is not a not with ESPN. The grant of rights is saying that no matter what or who broadcasts Florida State's games, the ACC is the one that gets paid, and then they distribute accordingly. That's what makes this so difficult. And, you know, that also means that there is not a, a clear negotiated number at this point. And it's because, and the reason for that is the, the ACC has no interest in negotiating that. They believe the, the grant of rights is airtight legally and they're going to fight on this point because they think it's airtight. They're this is going to go into litigation. If Florida State leaves the ACC, they're relying on litigation and a protracted court battle that essentially results in somehow not having to turn over every dollar that the that the institution would bring in from from those media uh, broadcasts to the ACC. 
And the, the, the real danger of this, by the way, the danger of the grant of rights is that, let's say Florida State and Clemson leave. Right? Let's say that happens. And let's say, let's say they do find a way to negotiate with the ACC to, to negotiate the grant of rights into, into a little bit smaller buyout somehow. So let's say right now the ACC gets about, you know, they distribute about $30 million, $31 million per team each year. So let's just say that they were able to negotiate a buyout of $30 million a year for the next 12 years to cover that. Now, first of all, that is a lot of money, right? That is $360 million. So you were looking at a third of a little over a third of a billion dollars. But let's say for the sake of argument that they could negotiate that out and say, you know what? We will pay you over a third of a billion dollars to let us out plus the $120 million, uh, plus $120 million uh, exit fee, which is not included there. So if you just say, you know, 360 plus 120, uh, that, that comes out to 480 billion or $480 million. That's almost half a billion dollars. Let's say that they said, you know what? We can negotiate this out. We'll pay you $480 million to let us go our way. Why? Well, because we're going to make more from the, you know, seven, all things being equal, we'll end up making $70 million from the big 10 say, and that's, you know, 70 minus 30 is 40. So you end up being higher anyway. Now, the problem there, by the way, is that you're still $30 million short of, of, of your conference mates. You're getting the full 70 million, but let's just say for the sake of argument that that happens and that Florida state is hoping that by leaving, they destabilize the ACC enough that other schools leave. And once eight schools, by the way, leave the ACC, the grant of rights is voided because half the comp, more than half the conference is left. So that might be the hope, but here's the problem. The moment that that 30 million for each team, that 60 million gets paid to the ACC, the ACC now can divide that, that extra 60 million between the additional schools that stayed. And now they're dividing it in a smaller pie. There's, there's fewer slices of that pie and the, the pie just, the pie just grew. It's not a smaller pie. The pie just grew essentially or stayed the same size and it's being divided among this, among the same number of teams. So now there's less incentive for those teams to leave because they're already making more. And the more teams that leave, the more that's the case. So that's one of the reasons that the, that the grant of rights gets so hard to break is because it gets really hard to get a full 18 contingent necessary to break the grant of rights to all leave. Because if you're team number eight and seven teams have left, now you're getting all seven of those shares go back into the conference coffers and you're getting those seven shares redivided among the eight teams left. That becomes a problem. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons that, that you know, this whole notion of the eight teams leaving and, and breaking off and doing all that, that's, that's, you know, that probably at this point, wishful thinking, it's not impossible. But you remember, I've got contacts at, at UNC as well, and I've been given no indication that UNC is, is ready to roll and, and depart at this point. They, by the way, would love to, but based on what I've gathered from my UNC contacts, UNC believes that the grant of rights is not, uh, is basically airtight. They don't think that that's something that they can challenge at this point. They'd be happy for Florida state to do it and, and maybe win. And if they could, then that makes, that makes, uh, that makes it open for them to potentially go where they want to go, but they're, they're not ready. They're not just going to leave to leave. That's just 
not where they are. Now, Florida State, from what I understand, believes they can make a legal case or bank on other factors like sovereign immunity. They could just say, you know what? We're a sovereign inst- we're an institution of the sovereign state of Florida, and yeah, we made an agreement, uh, in, you know, contractually that this is how this is going to work. But we're just going to stiff you, and you can't make the state of Florida pay anything. They could do that, and that may actually be the route they take. But you know, that sets a pretty dangerous precedent there in terms of how all that works in terms of any of these media contracts. Now, you know, that's and and there's no question that that would be a gamble. That, that trying to challenge the, the grant of rights this way would be a gamble. The problem is that staying is also a gamble at this point. You can't afford to, to fall you know, 30 and $40 million behind your rivals year in, year out. And you know, up until now, being in the ACC has, has been enough of an advantage competitively that it offset the brand and resource disadvantages of you know, some teams in other conferences. But when you've got 40 or $50 million less per year coming in, that's no longer the case. That, that, that level of resource disadvantage, that tips the balance to where some of the other advantages that have always been there being in the ACC no longer are significant advantages and that no longer significant enough to offset that. So that's where things are. I fully expect Florida State to, uh, within say the next year and a week, I, I think they'll probably find some way to go. I just don't know how it's going to work. And I do think it is a gamble, but not doing it is also a gamble. So who knows how this is all going to go down, but <laughs> uh, there's a lot, a lot in play here. Anyway, final thing, I'm going to do a few updates here based on uh first few days of camp. Some of the stuff that I've, I've seen based on, you know, the various clips that have been released from all sorts of places. And then also, uh, you know, talking to folks and, and all, all the things that usually happen around this time of year. Um, first thing I want to point out is uh, I, th- there was, how should I put this? Um, a- another former Florida state wide receiver who was uh, much better than me. Uh, watched these guys, spent some time with the, with the current roster over the summer, got, got to watch those guys work a little bit this summer. His conclusion at the end of all that, was that Keon Coleman was the best wide receiver on the team, and it wasn't especially close. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> Coleman is still learning, still not you know a hundred percent there in terms of uh, of having the offense down. So in that sense, you know Johnny Wilson and and some of those other guys who are there are ahead of him. And you know Johnny, when when Johnny came on board, Johnny came in for the spring. And that, that puts him ahead of where, where Keon was when Keon came in in the summer. But Coleman is the most talented guy on that, uh, you know, on that, uh, on that team of, of any of the guys that, that are going to play major minutes this year or major reps. And all things being equal, I think he, he becomes very clearly sort of the, the 1A wide receiver, 1A or 1B by the time you, you get to the LSU game. And, and some of the clips that I've seen from practice have only confirmed that for me. He moves way better than I thought he did. Looking at some of the stuff from Michigan State, I thought, you know, it, it, I, I think I'm, I misevaluated him initially. I'll, I'll admit that. Because I, I thought he was basically, you know, a good jump ball, big body type receiver. And, you know, jump ball, uh, back shoulder, you know, dig route type guy. And I think he's much more of a complete player than I've realized. He he just didn't have the the offense around him 
to be able to make use of everything that he brought to the table. But he he's smoother and I think a good bit faster than I realized. So he's that's a guy that's going to be really good for Florida State this year. And you combine him on one side with Johnny Wilson on the other or, you know, with those guys, uh, you know, spelling each other at different points. I think you're going to see some decent receiver rotation there. Uh, Coleman makes this offense a lot better. And, you know, we had some questions. I, I talked about this even after the spring. There's still some questions about who is going to be able to replace the big play type stuff that Pokey Wilson had brought to the table. Well, Keon Coleman's better than Pokey. And 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 it's not not by a little. Uh Coleman is a he's a legit, you know, first, second round type prospect. He he is he is a real player. So that's number one. Uh number two is uh Fisk. <laughs> uh Bra- Braden Fisk is also better than I thought he'd be when he signed. I think that's another misevaluation on my part. You know, if anything, I was I was under I underrated both of those guys, and I think the coaching staff did a great job of establishing how they would fit in, in what they're doing. But Fisk is, you know, I saw on the tape, and we talked about this, I saw that he was he was quick, that he uh, had a great motor and all of that, but I think he's a good bit more powerful. He's a more powerful athlete than I thought he was playing at, at, uh, at, at Western Michigan. I wasn't sure, you know, I thought he'd be a guy who could play, you know, inside and out a little bit and, you know, bring that motor, bring some quickness to the table. But I had some questions about how how powerful, how strong he was at the point of attack. I don't have a whole lot of questions about that now. I think he walks in day one and he's going to start next to Fabian Lovett. And that, you know, there you go. I also, uh, you know, I think Briggs is, is he he's looking like he might finally be recovered from that knee injury a year and a half ago. Uh, that that makes that makes them a good bit better there as well, and I think just overall, on the hoof, this is the best looking Florida State roster since 2013. No, not 2014, not 2016. That 2014 team got fat on both lines. You can go back to my preseason podcast from 2014, and I was saying like, look, this this team does not look as good as they did last year. They they they're, they're a little bit soft around the middle. You got some concerns there. The coaches are having to push them a little bit. There were some concerns going into that 2014 season, but you know, you knew like, look, you got Jameis Winston, you got enough of the talent on defense. They're still going to be really good. But this team, in terms of on the hoof, how they look and what depth they have across the board on both lines of scrimmage, what they've got at the skill positions and all of that, I think this team is actually ahead of the 2014 team. This looks like not only a playoff contender, but to me, this looks like a team that can win if they get there. And they've very they followed pretty close to the Clemson formula that beat Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State and all of that when they got there, and that was excellent defensive line with depth and corners that that can single cover, an outstanding dual threat quarterback, and then just huge stud wide receivers that you can't single cover. That was the the core of what they did. They weren't that great on the offensive line, but it didn't matter because they had. Deshaun Watson throwing to, you know, guys like T Higgins. And that was enough. Now you look at Florida state's wide receivers and Florida state's the team with the, you know, with the kind of wide receivers that Clemson's had the last few years or had during their, their big run, six, four, six, five, six, seven, enormous can't single cover reliably big play receivers on the outside. Guys who just, you you get in trouble and you just throw it up and they bail you out and it's frustrating for a defense and demoralizing and that's what you got. 
And then Florida State to that adds something that Clemson never had during that period, and that's a top-level offensive line with depth. And then, you know, Clemson had some playmakers at running back, especially ETN in the in in the uh uh the second what 2018 season or whatever that was. Uh the uh the, the, you know, ETN was was there, but I think Florida State's running back position is stronger than Clemson's was, say, in the 2016 team with Deshaun, with with Benson and, and Hill. So this is a team, as long as they stay healthy during during camp, as long as you know the pieces do gel and come together, this is a team that I think is a is a playoff team, and I think they can win. They can they can contend once they get to the playoff. Does that mean they will? Now, that's a whole different question. You've got to have some luck got to stay healthy all sorts of other things come into play i mean last year ohio state would have beaten georgia i think if if Mar- if marvin harrison jr hadn't gotten hurt when he did georgia got lucky by an ill-timed injury for ohio state's best player and you know that was that so you know you, you need a little bit of luck but you got to put yourself there and you got to put yourself in a position to be able to win and i think florida state in terms of what they've got on the roster what i see in terms of what showed up in camp I think this is a team that can win if they get there. We'll see. Should be a really fun year. And it should be a fun year to be back with the Unconquered Podcast. And this, of course, has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, ShenRealEstate.com in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach in Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast shop at unconqueredpodcast.com, which features stickers, magnets, and other seminal gear. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. I'm especially grateful to those above the dynasty level, that is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Jonathan Kennedy, Lee Caswell, Travis Smith, Tyler Kashishki, Dave Blair, and Bert Bertoldi. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. I made this.